Hi, this is Liz Tinkham, and welcome to Third Act, a podcast about people embracing the third act of their lives with a new sense of purpose and direction. The third act begins when your script ends, but your show's not finished. Hello, and welcome to Third Act. On today's show, I'm thrilled to talk with May Lee, the accidental activist, and another Forbes 50 over 50 impact winner. May grew up in Dayton, Ohio, as one of very few Asians in her community, and as she likes to tell it, someone who defied the Asian stereotype by not becoming a doctor or lawyer, but rather a television journalist. She had a humble start in this career in Redding, California, learning her craft by doing everything, including carrying the 50-pound camera around to her stories. Her success there led her to much bigger television jobs, both in the United States and Asia, where she launched The May Lee Show to highlight stories of Asian women. Today, she continues that show in a vlog format on YouTube. However, the show has changed a bit in the last 18 months. As the pandemic started and Asian hate began to rise, May pivoted her show to tell the important stories about the issues in the Asian American and Pacific Islander communities. She also teaches a journalism class at USC on how Asians are portrayed in journalism. Join me as I talk to May about what needs to change in education, government, and corporations to wake up America on these issues. May, welcome to the Third Act Podcast, and congratulations on being named to the Forbes 50 over 50 impact list. So where were you when you found out and how did you find out? Uh, it's strange because I didn't even know I got it on the list until I had logged on to LinkedIn just to do a daily check-in and somebody congratulated me and posted the article. But you didn't even know you had been nominated or anything? I knew I was going to be nominated, but I had okay. no idea that I was going to make it. So that kind of came as a shock. I think if the list had already been out a day before I found out. So Forbes didn't send you a note or anything? No, that's really <laughs> shocking. I couldn't believe they didn't like give me any kind of notification. But uh, l- needless to say, I'm not complaining. It was a really, really lovely, amazing surprise. And t- tell, let's talk about it because I didn't explain. So what? tell the audience what the, the impact list is. Yeah, so it's Forbes 50 over 50. And they decided to do this for the first time, recognizing women 50 years and older. Uh, Mm -hmm. in their various industries and whatever they're doing. And so they put out a list. My list was the impact list. Mm -hmm. So 50 women who were doing things that they considered, Forbes considered making an impact on the world. Uh, So again, I was really pretty blown away that I was chosen for this list. Oh, well, I think we're going to hear why here as we go through the podcast. So we've named or I've named this episode The Accidental Activist because of your work around Asian American and Pacific Islander issues, which I want to hear all about. But let's start in the hotbed of Asian America diaspora, Dayton, Ohio. So (laughs) so what were you doing there? Well, I grew up there. Uh, My father was a psychiatrist. I am a true Buckeye because I was born at the university hospital. But we moved back to Korea because that was the whole plan. My father and my mother wanted to live in Korea for the rest of their lives. After I was born, when I was about a year and a half or so, we moved back. But it was still very politically unstable at the time in the late 60s in Korea. So they decided to move back again and eventually ended up in Dayton, Ohio, when I was about five. Uh, And so that's why we were there with the intention of only staying there for a few years. And then my father was thinking of moving to California, but they never did for decades. So uh, that's where I ended up growing up. 
in Dayton. Was there much of a Korean American community there? Oh, God, no. <laughs> Were you one of? I was one of a very few. I certainly was always the only Asian kid in school besides mm-hmm. my older brother, but he was five and a half years older. So we never were sort of in the same right, school, school together. Um, but yeah, no, no, no. I absolutely grew up being the only Asian, you know, made to feel like the outsider, otherwise the professional foreigner, you know, all those things that you now hear about much more so mm-hmm. than before. But yeah, that that's what my experience was growing up. So you go to boarding school at Miss Porter's in Connecticut. So why there and what happened when you got there? How did you choose to go up there? So boarding school was a funny thing. It's not like I was your typical kid that my parents wanted to send away, right? It wasn't mm-hmm. their idea. I had the notion of wanting to go to boarding school because um, I knew about it. Uh, My brother actually had gone a few years ahead of me. He actually didn't do so well because he was kind of a rebel. So Mm -hmm. it wasn't like he was such a success story that my parents were like, oh, great idea. But I, for some reason, inside of my head and almost like my soul, I kind of knew I had to go into an environment where I had to fend for myself and kind of blossom. I sort of knew Mm -hmm. all along that there was something in me that needed to come out. And so I needed to be challenged. And so I decided boarding school was probably a good option for me. And then I chose Miss Borders. It was, it's an all girls boarding school. It was really for the academics and the, the experience of being on my own. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I grew up in Ohio as well. And I mean, nobody went to boarding school or very few people. So it's interesting you picked it yourself to do it. Full uh, transparency. I did go to a school where it was more common to go. And in my class alone, six of us ended up going to boarding school. Oh, my goodness. So how did you end up in journalism after going there? It took a while. I actually was your typical Asian kid growing up thinking that I had to be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer, you know, those safe careers that got a lot of attention in terms of respect and things like that. And my parents, of course, expected me to go into a safe career. I struggled through math and science in high school and my freshman year in college. I even declared pre-med. It wasn't like I was bad at math and science. I was terrible. So I really was barking up the wrong tree. And that's what the first lesson I got in terms of don't force yourself into doing something that is not right for you. And you know mm-hmm. it, you know it, right? Just because other people and other entities were expecting you to do this, don't think you have to if it's not right. And mm-hmm. so I finally asked myself, what is it that I actually really enjoy? And the answer was, I love writing. I love public speaking. I love storytelling. And I had a natural curiosity. And so it was a voice I heard call it the voice of God or, or some sort of external voice that literally told me you should be a broadcast journalist. And from that moment on, that's all I did. And that's all I've done since then. And your first job was in Redding, California. Now I just drove through there like two weeks ago. What a place to start. Not a particularly big town, kind of out in the middle of nowhere of California, Northern California. What did you do there and how'd you get that job to get going? You were in Reading, which was the headquarters of my channel, which was a local channel, KRCR. And uh, so Reading was the great metropolis. I went from Reading, I trained in Reading as a, a reporter. 
That was my first on-air job that I ever had. And then I was sent to Ukiah, which is the county seat of Mendocino County as the Ukiah, Mendocino County Bureau Chief. Sounds really fancy, but that meant that I was alone. I was my own driver, producer, camera person, editor, reporter in the middle of nowhere. I ended up there because in television and broadcasting, you really do have to start from rock bottom. And you should start at a small station, a small market to get all your training. And so that's what I did. And back then, remember, this was like 1990. Mm -hmm. uh, Our equipment weighed about 60 pounds. Yeah, the video audio uh, pack went into this giant, enormous, like, it's almost like a shoulder carrying suitcase or something. And then, of course, the tripod weighed, you know, another 20 pounds. So, and I'm really petite. So the fact that I was lugging around this very heavy archaic equipment on my own, going to the most remote locations where there had been like murders and like weird stuff happening in the woods. Yeah. So that, that was my first, my first on-air gig, but you know, that's how I had to make it. Yeah. Good experience. So you end up going back to Asia. What takes you back there? So first time around, I actually went to Asia because I had seen this, you know, very small ad in the Asian American Journalists Association newsletter. This was pre-internet. So this came mm-hmm. in paper form in the mail. And this network called NHK had said they were looking for an Asian American journalist to work for their English language business show in Tokyo. And so I was like, wow, that sounds intriguing. And, you know, up to that point, I was a local reporter and anchor mm-hmm. um, in different markets. So I applied and lo and behold, I get the job. And so I moved to Tokyo, start working for NHK, which is like the BBC equivalent of Japan. Mm-hmm. And I start working for this business you know, program that um, is in English. I am a reporter, then I'm promoted to anchor and this show is shown on CNBC and Sky News. So, you know, it was international. Mm-hmm. And then after that, two years later, CNN came knocking and asked if I would be the Tokyo correspondent for CNN. And so that's how my CNN career started. I was there for a couple more years and then CNN transferred me to Hong Kong to become their main anchor for CNN International. And that was right before the handover of Hong Kong in 1997. It was an incredible experience to be there during such a historic time of transition. So that was my first tour of duty in Asia. Then I I moved back to the States after that to work for Oxygen. And then you go back again, right? After Oxygen, I had a short stint at ABC News. And then CNBC Asia wanted to hire me to be their main anchor out of Singapore. Very unplanned. I was not thinking I was going to move back to Asia, but I moved back and was in Singapore for six years. Yeah. And is that when you started the Mei Li show? Yes, the first iteration. Okay. So you start that to highlight stories of Asian women. And why? I think you told me it was like one of the first shows like that. Why was it the first? And where had the stories of Asian women been up until that point? Well, there hadn't been. You know, Asia was still changing and it still is. I mean, Asia is a very dynamic place. And, Mm -hmm. you know, for people who think, all of Asia is the same. They clearly don't know what they're talking about. It right. is the most diverse, you know, area of the world, really. And so, but when I was there, I noticed that Asian women, are, you know, in several different countries were changing very quickly in terms of advancing, becoming very independent, 
uh, career-minded. They're holding off marriage. I mean, there are all these things that were happening in Asia, especially to Asian women. And so I thought, wow, you know, th there should be some sort of outlet, you know, for Asian women to be represented and talk mm -hmm. about issues they care about openly and be highlighted. But there was really nothing there except for the typical like beauty magazines and fashion oh, magazines, yeah. things like right. that. Of course, you know, that's standard. But an Oprah-esque kind of show that really sort of celebrated the changing Asian female. So I thought, you know, somebody's got to talk about this because I see it and I see that it's a trend. So I decided to launch my own talk show that really focused on the Asian, the modern Asian woman. And how was it received? In terms of being received initially, the whole concept of it, people loved the idea of it because it was so new. Mm -hmm. And the minute I would say, this is a show about the modern woman of Asia, people got it instantly because they mm -hmm. knew what was happening. They knew what was kind of taking place and the evolution of, of this Asian woman. So they understood the premise. Now, execution was a different story. This was still back in 2007 when I was mm -hmm. preparing to launch the show. And back then, production quality, when it came to television was still not as sophisticated as it is now, right? And certainly it was behind the U.S., what I was used to. So it was really hard to create a show that I had in mind with the level of quality that I was hoping for. So that was a struggle. I, I did get distribution, but then traction was really hard. Getting advertising was hard. Marketing was hard. I mean, it was, it was a bootstrap operation. And hindsight is twenty twenty. If I had to do it all over again, I would I would have done it very differently. Now you're still doing an iteration of it, right? As a podcast today? Yes. My podcast, you know, when I started it in early twenty twenty in February, the the idea of it was to highlight AAPI stories, you know, successes and issues that we care about, things like that, because there wasn't that that kind of show out there either. Just before we pivot into the current Meili show, what brought you back to the U.S. from Asia? I had been, you know, in Singapore for over six years, and I had tried to do this talk show, the Meili show. Uh, I only did one season of it. I'm not kidding. It almost killed me. It was so much and was not the success I was hoping it would be in the sense of like ratings and, you know, monetary success and all that. And I was ready to come back. My parents were living here in Southern California and I had been away for so long. They were getting older. So I wanted to be back um, closer to them. Unfortunately, only a year after I moved back, uh, my father was tragically killed by a 16 year old driver. When it first happened, I, I was like, I cannot believe this just happened when I decided to move back to be closer to them. But then I had to flip the script and say to myself, at least I came back and had the year. Now, when you came back, did you, in addition to spending time with your parents, did you want to continue? Were you continuing your journalism career? I, my, my plan was definitely to come back and, and, you know, kind of see what was going on here in California and find, you know, work that made sense for me after getting over the tragedy and all of the, the stuff that came along with my father's death. I did actually join another network, CGTN America, as a correspondent. 
covering, you know, all different kinds of stories. And that was fine. And, and I was there for about four years. But then I was like, okay, you know what? I think I want to go out, out on my own again and try something a little bit different, but focus on the Asian American community because I see a need. When I left my network to start the second iteration of Meili Show, which launched at the very beginning of 2020 in February. As you launched that, you started to see the issues of Asian hate surface. Talk about that moment and, and what and what you decided to do about it. Yeah, you know, it's funny, Liz, because when I started the show, we had pre-recorded a couple of episodes already, and this was before the pandemic. So we didn't know there was going to be a pandemic that was going to be, you know, disrupting everything. So we started, you know, happily, modestly with some celebrities and business people and things like that, started the show. But then obviously by end of February into March, you know, this was becoming a much bigger deal, not just from a health perspective, but what I noticed right away and started hearing about were all these sort of attacks against Asians. But it started slow in the beginning and nobody was really picking up on these stories. But I did because of my experience growing up with a lot of racism on the show. I said, everyone has to pay attention. So I decided to pivot my show to a certain extent to start talking about what was happening and start empowering people and start, you know, allowing people to discuss what was happening with the anti-Asian hate and that's how I became this accidental activist where I just fell into it, really. And I felt like I had no choice. I really felt like I had to. Talk about some of the stories you've been talking through or telling on your show. Well, you know, of course, during the height of all of this, I was talking about all the incidents that were taking place and making people much more aware of what was happening. You know, because the problem really, Liz, is what a lot of us recognize, you know, into it is that there's such a lack of awareness when it comes to the Asian experience, the Asian American experience, and the long history of Asian Americans in this country, that there's yeah. very little awareness and understanding of who we are, where we come from, and what we've experienced. The stereotype is that all Asians are rich, all Asians are educated, all Asians are fine. So we don't suffer anything. It's complete BS. If you start learning about the history of the Asian American experience, there's been a lot of persecution, so much racism, so much oppression. If people start understanding that there is a history of this, I think there's going to be a lot more empathy towards the community. When we were doing the pre-interview, I just, I got off the phone talking to you and all I could think of is, oh my gosh, my own education is so woefully lacking in everything you talk about. Because the only thing I ever understood was the internment of Japanese during World War II. So what, I mean, and I felt terrible. Like, I mean, I felt terrible in one hand, but good on the other that you, like I have a new source in you and your show. So what needs to change in the U.S. to better educate and wake up mainstream America to better understand all this? First and foremost, it is education. If everyone listening right now thinks about their education in school, you know, elementary, junior high, high school, even college, how much Asian American history were you taught? And I'm sure the answer would be like either zero or just like a fraction of whatever time was spent in history mm -hmm. class. Same with me. We all have the same experience. So right. it tells you that our educational system is woefully lacking when it comes to certain 
historical context, right? That has to be something that is being more considered. Do you see any states, any curriculum changing to better that? I think the state of Illinois just um, passed legislation saying that they're going to now make it part of their curriculum. California is going to make ethnic studies much more part of their curriculum. Florida, believe it or not, they're considering legislation to incorporate Asian American studies into their curriculum. So we're starting to see this awareness. We're starting to see that, you know, educational systems and institutions realize, oh man, yeah, we have left out a giant swath of history. And that's what has led to these stereotypes, these false narratives that lead to what has been happening up to now. And then in terms of mass media, We see entertainment, we see television, we see journalism, we see storytelling. We need to have more of that representation and better storytelling that's accurate so that, again, these false narratives are broken down and these stereotypes are also dismantled. Mm -hmm. We're starting to see that in Hollywood, though, which is great. Good. And what about corporations, government, any any recommendations there? Government, of course, you know, uh, the new administration and also on local and and state level, they've certainly been pushing different legislation to make anti-Asian hate, you know, crime and things like that. So that's great. I honestly think it's private sector that has Mm -hmm. more power to make change. And within corporations, they should certainly be having more conversations, more educational events allow their employees that come from diverse backgrounds to have more say for more representation. Mm -hmm, I would agree. What's interesting to me, too, is that you've sort of parlayed a lot of this into a class that you teach at USC around Asian Americans and journalism. So talk about that class because it's fascinating. Yeah, the class uh, I developed uh, very, very quickly earlier this year when all of this was happening, and obviously I was a, you know, I had a front row seat to everything that was happening with anti-Asian hate and the reason behind it because of lack of education and, and awareness. So I pitched this new course saying, hey, you know, USC Annenberg, top journalism school, has no courses, nothing in their curriculum that even touches Asian American experiences or history. So I said, how about a course that's called Asian American History and Journalism, to go through the historical events and also talk about how journalism and media has impacted the Asian American community through their storytelling. Again, developing false narratives, perpetuating stereotypes, things like that. And USC and my you know, bosses, my director, immediately fast-tracked the course they reacted because of everything that was happening around us. And they also know that USC has a huge Asian American student population. It was the right time for me to pitch this. And so we fast-tracked it. And I started this course this fall of -hmm. this year, which was very, very fast. Actually, you know, academia moves so slowly. I know. I know. And it's and it's a lot of work on you to develop that course so quickly as well. I've never put together a sil- syllabus. Wow. That is challenging. <laughs> um, but I did it. And uh, so far, the course has gone really well. My students are great. You know, what I noticed immediately when I started this class was the students felt like it was finally a place where they could speak openly about their own experiences about their own, you know, issues and what they grew up with. 
the pain that they've harbored internally. That's been a very interesting experience for me as a professor to allow for this kind of conversation that's very open, honest, sometimes painful, sometimes uncomfortable. But I see that there's an appreciation for it. I'm assuming the students are going on to journalism degrees. Most of them have some sort of communication or journalism interest, but there are some who have no intention of going into journalism. It's just that they felt that they lacked the Asian American history education and they realized that. And so they wanted to also learn more about the history and kind of get in touch with maybe their own heritage, their own background. You know, it's been great for me too, because I've learned so much from them as well. I always say that about my own students. I learned so much from them. I mean, it's going to be so enriching for them when they go to become professional journalists to have that in their background. That's important because as a journalist, you know, the one thing that's been lacking and we, we talk about all the time, which is diversity in newsrooms. We need more diversity in newsroom. We need people coming from different backgrounds and cultural backgrounds who already have that understanding to be able to cover something with that lived experience. It's really BS to say journalism is so objective, you know, you can't have any emotion or any feeling. Yes, you can. Sometimes that enriches a story. If someone already has a background, for instance, like the Atlanta shootings, you know, most of the victims were Asian women, right? Well, the problem with that coverage from mainstream media was that so many of the journalists had zero understanding of Asian culture. And so therefore the story was not covered with that depth. But if there were journalists who had that understanding already of the culture, the shame, all of these things that come with the Asian culture, there would have been better coverage. And so that was a lesson in newsrooms realizing we need more diversity. We need diverse voices at the table to be able to cover these stories better. So as I pivot back, if I go back to the beginning of the, you're winning the Forbes uh, Impact Award. So you're making a difference with the class and the Mei Lee show. So what ultimately, do you have a goal or is, what's next for all of, all of what you're doing as the accidental activist? It's so funny, Liz, because what I like about what the topic of your podcast is that, you know, there's people who have kind of pivoted intentionally or not. I guess it's a combination. I intentionally wanted to pivot somewhat, taking all of the skills that I have, you know, over 30 years of being a journalist and trying to funnel it in a way that was impactful, that could make a difference. I wanted to at least give back in some way with all the skills and experience I have. So that's what I'm trying to do, I guess, in in the way that I'm doing it through teaching and, and through the podcast. I hope that I can continue to have an impact on you know, not just the API community, I really realize that there's a lot of, there's still a lot of crap that women and young women go through. There's still a lot of discrimination. There's still a lot of pain. There's still a lot of identity crisis. I see that in my female students. And I would love to be somebody who can continue empowering women's and young women's voices, give them the notion that they're worth something. We all do have value, regardless of where we are in our lives. And again, the Forbes 50 over 50, what I loved about that whole premise is that it's saying that we're still worth something. You know, it's just like, I keep on saying to people, I'm not dead yet. (laughs) Not even close. I still have a lot to offer. In fact, I probably have more to offer because of all my experience and because of all my lived experience. 
I need to share that. And so I would love to continue sharing that. That's why the, my biggest hero is Oprah. Here's a woman who has taken everything that she has experienced in her life, both professionally and personally, and used every aspect of herself to give to others, to empower others, to educate mm -hmm. others, and to be so authentic in that generosity. And she keeps going. I mean, with the mental illness that she's been talking about, it's been fantastic. It's been amazing. And so if I can even be a fraction of what Oprah has accomplished um, using her platform in that way and being so genuine, then I would be thrilled. Well, you kind of answered this question, but I almost named this podcast, I'm Not Done Yet. So in addition to impacting women and continuing to tell stories, what else aren't you done with yet? I'm not done traveling. I've been to about 55 countries so far but not nearly enough. I have so many places on the list still. And so... Wait, wait what's top of the list? Well, Galapagos diving, because I'm, I'm a scuba diver, but uh, Galapagos, I've been wanting to go to Bhutan for about 20 years. I've been to Nepal and I and I went to, I went higher than base camp. I went to 18.5, trekking Mount Everest, but I want to go to Bhutan. I want to go to Antarctica. So there's still so many places I would love to to visit. But yeah, so traveling, yes. My poor little passport is very sad these days. <laughs> it's been on hold, right? Mine is too collecting dust. You know, it, this is going to sound morbid, but and I don't mean to sound morbid, but I have lived a very blessed life. I feel like I've already lived the lifetimes of three people. If it all ended now, I would be very, very happy. I feel the exact same way. Anything else is really icing on the cake. But I do feel like I am, I am on, a, on a mission that I've been given. And I do, need, I, I do feel like I need to live that out. I would agree with you. As I said, you've made a big impact on me. So thank you so much for joining me on Third Act and for your passion and activism. Where can we find you online? It's all the usual suspects, right? The, the show is a vodcast. So video form of the show is on YouTube. A vodcast. You're a vodcaster. And then the audio form of the podcast is, of course, available on all you know podcast platforms. I'm pretty active on social media. So Instagram and Facebook, LinkedIn, obviously, um, Twitter a little bit. I'm not as active on Twitter as I should be. And then TikTok, I tried it. Yeah. And it's just, I, I think I'm way too old. <laughs> you got to get your students to help you out with that one. I should. In fact, I, I do think about my students and how talented they are uh, as journalists and storytellers. And I feel like I need to do some sort of joint, you know, work with them. Oh, that would be great. I've done that. And they're amazing. Amazing. So anyway, May, thank you so much. Thank you, Liz. Thanks for joining me today to listen to the Third Act podcast. You can find show notes, guest bios and more at thirdactpodcast.com. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe and write a review on your favorite podcast platform. I'm your host, Liz Tinkham. I'll be back next week with another guest who's found new meaning and fulfillment in the third act of their life.